The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Here's what's ahead. Markets are mixed today. Tech earnings taking down the NASDAQ. But with the Fed decision one week away, what is more important to the market and your money right now? Is it rates or is it reports or is it maybe something else? Plus, last night, Pennsylvania's big Senate debate, the Democratic candidate John Fetterman says he is pro-fracking. Is that going to set off a Texas-sized nat gas boom in the Keystone State? The CEO of EQT is here. And more big earnings reports, they're on the way. You got Meta, you got Ford, you got Caterpillar all due up. We are going to set you up with the story and the trade on each. That's all ahead, but we begin, as always, with your numbers. We've had a nice run. I mean, what did we say yesterday? Best month for the Dow since November of 2020. Well, little steam coming out. We're still up three-tenths of 1% for the Dow. It's 100 points. But the NASDAQ, and we're going to talk, I promise you, we're going to talk a lot more about technology. The NASDAQ down 1.25%. So these big numbers, big names, not doing that well. Tech is the big story today. And from Microsoft to Google, everything kind of disappointing. Microsoft having its worst quarterly net income drop in more than two years. Alphabet on pace for its worst day since March of 2020. Shares of Alphabet are down 7% right now. Both companies, Microsoft Alphabet, warning of slowing sales. Seagate, the hard drive maker, another tech name getting hit after earnings disappointed. And the company said that it was going to cut 8% of its workforce. Seagate down 7.6% right now. Intel completing its IPO of Mobileye. Shares popping after pricing at $21. That was above the already expected range. Mobileye, there we go, on the NASDAQ. That's a cool new graphic. Mobileye having a nice day. Look at that. I mean, plus 30% NASDAQ listed. That's a $6 move for MBLY. And Visa is leading the Dow after the profit beat as payment volume surge on strong consumer spending. And people seem to like the guidance from Visa as well. Over in the oil patch, Halliburton higher after Wells Fargo upgraded the stock to overweight raised their price target to $52 a share on HAL. Stock's at 36 and a half. So they're seeing like 15, 16 bucks of upside in HAL. They say they expect continued revenue growth despite, quote, an extremely tight market. All right, those are some individual names. We'll get to more throughout the show, but right now, to maybe the big market question, why have stocks suddenly popped? Well, some will say it's the recent sort of flattening or even down move in interest rates. Others say, no, 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 no. It's earnings and guidance. Others, meaning this guy, thinks maybe it's a little end of fiscal year window dressing from mutual funds. So which is it? Let's bring in the A-team of market action. We've got Faceman, Rick Santelli at the CME. Got Colonel Bapasani at the NYSE. Rick, let us start with you. Make the case for rates being the real market mover. Well, I'll tell you what, you made a very good synopsis there because the end of the fiscal year for many large institutional funds is a big deal. But I certainly do think 
that as you look at a one-week chart of 10s, a couple of things I'd like to point out. On the 21st, that was, of course, Friday last week, we made our high intraday yields on the cycle of 433. And it looks like we're toying with 4% today. We haven't closed under 4% since the 13th of October. It's been a while. And I think one of the big reasons why interest rates are going down is the growing notion that the central banks may be running out of runway, either by choice or political persuasion. Look at a two-day of Canadian 10 years. Huge drop in yields because the Bank of Canada expected to do 75 only did 50. Now, they didn't say that they thought inflation was under control, but they did hint that they think it will ultimately come under control next year. And if you look at what's going on with foreign exchange, I think the recent moves in the dollar are another very big reason why many are buying stocks and thinking the drop in interest rates is significant and real because the dollar has correlated quite well with the activity of central banks, ours in particular. Look at a two-day of the dollar versus the yuan. What a drop on the dollar side because they were selling dollars. And whether you looked at onshore or offshore, historic one-day drop. And finally, the aforementioned protagonist or antagonist, depending on your position, here's the dollar index. And guess what, Brian? The 50-day moving average comes in of right around 110.80, 110.80. We're certainly well below that. It'll probably be the first close under that moving average since mid-August. Lots of reasons, and not the least of which is we just buttoned up $43 billion in five-year note yields. And as I look at the charts across the room on the screen, yields are moving down a bit. Yeah. My guess is the auction went pretty well. Political persuasion indicating there may be some politics involved, Rick. No way. Rick Santelli, thank you very much. Shocking. All right, so there is the case for rates. But what about earnings or fund managers stepping in or something else? Bob Pisani's at the NYSE, and Bob, earnings matter. But is there something to this mutual fund October phenomena thing? There always is, but I don't think that's driving the bus. Uh, in, if we were in a world where the Federal Reserve was not aggressively raising interest rates the way they are, I would say earnings, of course, is what trumps everything else. And that's ultimately what drives the bus. But that's not the world we're living in. We're living in a world where the Fed is aggressively raising rates. And so macro interest rates really are very important. So let me just show you the earnings situation today. If you woke up this morning and it was two or three months ago and you said, oh, holy cow, Microsoft's down 6%. Alphabet's down 7%, Texas Instruments down 3%, Seagate's down 8%. You'd say, the S&P's going to be down 100 points when we open. We were never even close to that. Look at the S&P 500. It did open to the downside, but it almost started rallying immediately. And we got some word from the Bank of Canada that they were only hiking 50 basis points. We actually had another move up. The market moved on rate talk, exactly as Rick was discussing there. And that's really what's driving the bus right now. Now, it's true, overall, other earnings outside of tech we're okay. Kraft Heinz was okay. You mentioned Visa. Bristol Myers was okay. Hilton had good numbers. We know the travel business is good, so that's strong. But we know tech communications services drives the bus here, and we're not moving. Look what's happened in the last few days, just to emphasize the whole macro picture here. We have seen the, the yield on the two years coming down essentially four days now. What's happened? In the last four days, the S&P has moved up 5%. You think this is a coincidence? I don't think so. I think the macro is driving the bus very clearly. Finally, I just want to point out this IPO, and I know 
Uh, Brian mentioned Mobileye. It's getting a lot of nice track and really good volume today. I'm glad to hear that. Unfortunately, it's been one of the worst years in my 25 years covering IPOs. The IPO ETF that we followed, the whole basket of recent IPOs, that's down 50% this year. The S&P is only down 19%. So consider how bad it is. And if you're wondering, are, you haven't seen a lot of IPOs? You haven't seen any, practically. Take a look here. We've only got, what, 66 IPOs this year? $7.5 billion? In a typical year, Brian, 165 IPOs, raised $45 billion. Now, we've got two months left, but you're kidding me here. Uh, we're talking about an 80% effectively drop in IPOs mm. this year. Brian? That is not a good year for IPOs. Probably one of the bigger drops ever, I'm, I'm guessing, Bob. I can't imagine much bigger. It'd be 100%. Bob Pisani. One of the worst ever. One of the worst ever. There you go. All right. So, folks, there is your top line. Now let's get the takeaway. And why your first guest today says she's not trusting this market really until one big thing happens, maybe like one and a half. But there are still some stocks she likes right now. Joining us is Kim Forrest, Chief Investment Officer at Boca Capital Partners. I know earnings matter. But, Kim, what is that one big thing? Well, uh, next Tuesday, the Fed, right? They, they're going to meet and they're going to tell us what they're going to do. Who cares what they do that day? What we care about is what they're going to do in the future. And it looks like Canada has shown us what they're going to do. And that's probably going to slow the rate of increases. And I think that is what has been driving the market. I'm going to agree with Santelli today and think that that Friday uh, kind of soft announcement through back channels was really important to everybody that follows stocks. Yeah, the Fed. We heard from the I don't think we've ever talked about the Bank of Canada on the show, maybe the network before. <laughs> I know it's like, what's happening up there? But suddenly we're talking about the Bank of Canada. Do you think what, what Canada, Canada did by not raising as much as possible that our neighbors and friends to the north, that that's going to be an indication that our Fed is going to get more dovish or maybe in their case, a snow owl? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. And well, even more importantly, I think the bond market, which when I got into this business, I used to think equities were, you know, all that. And now I realize the bond people really have to be smart to be able to make money because of what they do. Right. They have they're very limited in how to make money but they have to be right. And I think they've been right with the run-up and now the reversal of interest rates. And I think that they can read the Fed, they can read the room, which is a global room, not just mm. the US and Canada, but what's happening with the dollar, what's happening all over the world with bonds. And I think they have shown us what the future is and the future is lower rates. All right, let's talk about the future of investing because we wanna know about the future, not the past, because the past, yep has been ugly for Intel. Last few years, uh, I don't think disaster for investors is too strong of a word. Stock's down 46%, what, in something like a year? But you yep. think the bleeding may finally be over for Intel? Well, I don't know what's going to happen in the short term, but I do know that they have a pretty good strategy going forward, and their operations aren't in Taiwan. And I think that's super important. Um, to have all of that intellectual property on an island that has China looming over it is an issue, but it's also an issue because it is a um, earthquake-prone place too. And so much of our economy and our defense and just everything that we do depends on semiconductors. And I think that even Taiwan Semi is going to move off of that island. 
but um, Intel has a footprint here. They're expanding the footprint in Ohio, and I think they're going to be a leader for a lot of um, firms that will, they might switch to Taiwan, or I'm sorry, from Taiwan Semi to Intel if they can get their act together and become the fab for other um, chip makers. Yeah, you wonder if the market will, will finally start to reward a company that is doing what they've been asked to do, which is invest more in the United States. Intel has done that. You want investors to reward them because otherwise companies may decide to go the opposite way. Quickly, UPS, another name you like, sure. even in this environment. Sure. They're a company that uses um, technology really, really well. They're a technology company that just happens to deliver packages. And I think the, the yesterday's quarter announcement was really great. Um, they're also very shareholder friendly where they're kind of kicking out um, less profitable customers and keying on profitable customers. Gotta love that. And, and they have always had a great dividend and they return shareholder value. Kim Forrest, Boca Capital Partners. Good to have you back on again, Kim. Thank you very much. Thanks. All right, we've got a lot to do. And on deck, with the midterms nearly here, business is on the ballot. But for some, Election Day starting to look more like tax day. Robert Frank is here. But first, fracking. It used to be a political hot potato. But now we're starting to hear even some Democratic candidates say they're in favor of fracking. What happened? In Pennsylvania last night, with the CEO of EQT, based in Pennsylvania, Toby Rice, is up next. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back. In last night's Pennsylvania Senate debate, both candidates, GOP and Democrats, saying they are for fracking. I strongly support fracking, drilling, the piping of that natural gas. And I don't, I don't, I support fracking and I stand and I do support fracking. Now that is being seen as a bit of a U-turn for John Fetterman. But whatever you might think about that, the industry, no doubt, especially in Pennsylvania, thinking maybe it's a good thing. One of those candidates is going to win. Joining us now is Toby Rice, CEO of EQT, the nation's largest nat gas producer. Obviously, they're based in Pennsylvania, have significant operations there. And Toby, welcome on short notice. Listen, I understand that senators have limited control over what happens of the land. It's going to be the state legislature. It's going to be the government that have probably more ultimate pull on what happens with drilling. But when you heard even the Democratic candidates say, I am for fracking, what was your first thought? Well, it is a sign that perspectives are starting to change. 
and align with the American people where over 70 percent of Americans support more domestic energy production here in the United States. And you've got a candidate like Dr. Oz that's not just supporting hydraulic fracturing and our energy industry is talking about unleashing American energy and that being a tool to address the rampant inflation, the unnecessarily high energy prices, the rampant uh, in, and the war in Ukraine. Um, it's really great to see candidates talking about how natural gas and American energy can be a tool to solve the energy crisis and all the problems that the world is currently struggling with today. Well, knowing what you know about the Pennsylvania state government, knowing what you know about the likely governor, at least according to polls, and whomever wins this Senate fight, do you think something will change in Pennsylvania, which is one of the richest states for natural gas? Pennsylvania and, and, and Appalachia is the region where, where it's home to the biggest gas field in the world. We have a resource potential here in the United in, in Appalachia that's equivalent to Russia. So it uh, doesn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat, you can understand the tremendous potential that this region will bring. And what people need to understand is by unleashing U.S. LNG on the world stage, we will be unleashing the biggest green initiative on the planet, the key to energy security and lower prices for Americans. And also we'll be unleashing the hydrogen economy. We'll be unleashing our ability to put more renewables by leveraging natural gas to provide reliable backup, um, to backfill some of the intermittency when the sun doesn't shine, when the wind doesn't blow. So despite your view on energy, unleashing U.S. LNG on the world stage has, is a solution for all. Yeah, you're making an important point. To I think a lot of people that are just basically saying, let's get rid of all fossil fuels immediately, don't understand fossil fuels, particularly natural gas's critical role in the creation and backstopping of renewables, do they? I mean, right. I'm looking at the power mix in New England, where you're from and your mom still lives. 53% of all electricity in New England right now is natural gas. We, we forget how reliant we still are on them. We can talk about 50 years from now, Toby. But for the next 5, 10, whatever it may be, this is a critical mix. Absolutely. And when you're talking about New England, let's not forget about the fact that this grid was safe by using oil to generate power during the winter. Now, that is a remarkable uh, thing that needs to change. And clearly, more natural gas is needed around the world. But one thing that's incredibly important for people to understand is when solar and wind, as, as good as they are, when they cannot meet the world's demand for energy, the world is going to turn to using more coal. And in the last 12 months, solar and wind's inability to meet world demand for energy has, called co has caused coal emissions to skyrocket over 500 million tons. That amount of emissions wipes out 15 years of solar and wind mm. investments here in the United States. The, clearly, foreign coal is a big issue, and you need a heavyweight solution to address that. And that heavyweight solution is unleashing U.S. LNG on the world stage. It's going to start here in Pennsylvania and bring prosperity to Americans and billions around the world. Well, if we want to save Europe, and I'll be probably going back soon, I mean, U.S. LNG, natural gas... Some of that coming from you, if you can get it to the coast, you know, freeze it and put it on a giant ship. That's a whole different segment, I would imagine, Toby. U.S. natural gas is a huge part of getting Europe off of Russian natural gas. If they don't have us. They're in big trouble. Absolutely. You need to recognize that natural gas resources over two thirds is contained in four countries. Russia, Iran, Qatar and the United States. Who is going to step up and provide the energy security that the world needs? It's got to be the United States. And we have to transition our energy 
from higher carbon emitting sources to lower carbon emitting sources like natural gas. We need to transition who delivers that security from countries like Russia to America. And and that is going to be a key to providing the cheapest, most reliable cleanest form of energy, and that's what we need to be transitioning to. Uh, you might not have seen this because it was in Germany, Toby, and thankfully we've got a, a producer here, Christina Yates, who is German. She translates all the stories of the paper for me. There's a story in Germany, it's a true story today, that Germany is dismantling a wind farm to mine coal in the same location. It was a coal mine. They put a wind farm on top of it. They're tearing the wind farm down to reopen the coal mine, this is not The Onion, this is not Mad TV. That's a real story. Toby Rice joining us a short notice from what appears to be a concert. Toby, enjoy yourself. Thank you. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Brian. I <laughs> right, appreciate that. All right, still ahead. Supply chain problems. They have dominated the headlines since the start of the pandemic. But are we starting to see a slowdown on the demand side? The details next. Fallout for your money. Stick around. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. We've certainly talked a lot about supply issues in the economy. You know, shipping problems, trains, trucks, boats, lack of goods, etc. But now what we are starting to hear from companies are growing demand issues. Listen to these. We mentioned Seagate earlier, saying today they are seeing lower consumer spending and weaker demand than in the past. They're going to lay off 8% of the workforce. Texas Instruments noting they expect that most of their end markets will decline sequentially. Microsoft, no different. The company's saying that it sees materially weaker PC demand, and it will continue. F5 Networks, they're not left out. They're saying they'll assume they'll see more projects delayed or even cut down by customers. And Glassmaker Corning admitting they don't have enough positive evidence to guide for significant improvement in glass demand from the current very poor levels. That is just a small sample and all from last night. So maybe the macro conversation should be shifting from inventories to end users. Just a thought. All right, now let's find out what's going on outside the world of money and business. And go to Leslie Picker for a CBC News update. Hey, Brian, here's what's happening at this hour. Three men have been convicted of helping a a plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. The jury found them guilty of all charges, including providing material support for a terrorist act. The men were members of the paramilitary group, the Wolverine Watchmen. A judge has ordered former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows to testify before a grand jury investigating efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 presidential election results. Meadows is expected to appeal the ruling. On the news, authorities in Iowa investigating what could be one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history. The hunt for clues and bodies tonight at 7 Eastern. And a rare rhino has been born in a zoo in northern England. This greater one-horned rhino weighed 110 pounds at birth. Her mother was pregnant for around 16 months. There are Fewer than 3,000 of their kind left in the wild. It's 
certainly cute, but you got to feel kind of bad for the mother there with 16 months and 110 pounds, Brian. How would that feel, Leslie? I don't, I don't envy that rhino mother, that's for sure. I know, especially, you know, look at that. Well, cute, though, covered in armor. It's cute, yeah. I guess a mother loves their child and will say it's worth it. I wonder it. if the rhino knows Inevitably. It's, <laughs> rhino, it's a real rhino, not a Republican in name only, like we all hear about cute little guy. All right. That's right. Modern day dinosaur. <laughs> All right, right, still ahead. Can Meta manage the ad slowdown or will it be a Facebook face plant? We're going to hit that along with Ford and the big cat, Caterpillar, coming up. You know what time it is. It is time for earnings exchange. And today we've got the action, the story and the trade on Meta, Ford and Caterpillar. First up, Meta, a Facebook parent company down a whopping 60 percent this year. As a slowdown in digital ad revenue slams the stock, let's bring in Julia Borston for more on the story. We've got Delano Sapporo, who joins us now with the trade. He is the CEO of News Street Advisors and a CNBC contributor. Julia, good to see you. First to you, I mean, can it, have we seen the bottom of Meta's bad news? Well, look, I think analysts are expecting Meta to, repl- to report about 5.5% declining revenue in the quarter and coming off of Snap's numbers, which were disappointing with warnings about what's ahead and the fact that YouTube saw lower than expected advertising results. I think there are a lot of concerns about what Meta could report and what kind of outlook they could give. Then there's this question of cost cutting. How much have they cut costs? How much is that helping? How much more do they plan to do? And then a growth uh, potential for Meta is Reels. How much are they able to generate new revenue from Reels? Reels is, of course, their TikTok competitor. And how much damage is TikTok continuing to do, both in terms of user engagement and also in terms of ad revenue? And then, Brian, there's this question of investment in the metaverse. Yeah. Uh, We just heard this call uh, for Mark Zuckerberg to invest less in the metaverse. We'll see what he has to say, whether he's going to take that altimeter capital Brad Gerstner recommendation to heart. Because um, remember, after all, Zuckerberg does control the company. Julie, get more on Facebook slash Meta in just a second. Delano, to you. Are we seeing um, the bottom in the stock? I mean, I get, at some point there's going to be a bottom, I, I, I hope. Yes, uh, for all investors, including myself, that are shareholders um, in Meta, hopefully there will be a bottom. And I think the main thing we have to look at is some of the stuff that Julia mentioned is what's going to happen with, you know, Horizon Worlds, the metaverse. Right now, the numbers aren't as strong, right? There's like 200,000 monthly active users, which their goal originally was 500,000 by the end of the year. Um, And then as well as looking at what's going on with all the areas of their business, right? So Instagram, Reels, as Julia mentioned, that only has 17.6 million hours a day of users watching reels, which is less than one-tenth of the amount that's on TikTok. So they have a struggling in the competition there. Um, I think there will be a bottom at some point, but the news isn't strong right now. So I'm holding my shares and not looking to buy at this moment. Julie, I want to come back to you on this. I don't, I don't know if you remember the Pontiac Aztec, built by GM in the late, I think it was the late 90s, right? Generally considered to be one of the world's ugliest cars. But GM just kept pushing the car. It just kept pushing it and it, and it never sold. And you almost feel like, Meta, they're spending every commercial break. They're trying to make the goggles look cool. They've got to be spending a fortune on ads. Is it is anything working? Well, look, this is a very different situation, though, Brian, because the Pontiac Aztec, it was out. 
the metaverse, Mark Zuckerberg has said, is not going to really be a reality or a virtual reality until 2030. So that's a long ways out. So what they're doing is trying to build awareness, trying to get people used to the idea and trying to start selling these headsets. The other thing to keep in mind, Brian, is they have a lower cost headset around $400. They just introduced a new $1,500 one. That is not the What's same the mainstream um, product that the $400 one. This one has a lot more augmented reality. It has better features. In many ways, it's really designed for developers, the people who are going to be creating these next generation um, of, of virtual reality experiences. And it's also designed for enterprise. If you're going to be using uh, a VR headset, whether you're an architect or an engineer or, or a designer or that kind of thing, but, I mean, look, Mark Zuckerberg has said this is a long-term bet. I think the question now, especially in light of Brad Gerstner's criticisms of his management decisions, is whether or not they pull back on some of those long-term investments as they deal with the near-term challenges. In some someday, when I'm in a nursing home, the metaverse is going to be cool, right? You can hang out with your grandkids, walk through grand, you know, the streets of Rome. It will be cool, but right now, everything kind of looks like the Pontiac Aztec. Choppy, blocky, and... Not attractive. All right, let's move on to Ford. Speaking of cars, all right, Ford. Their numbers are out tonight. How will the quarter shape up with some continued part shortages still looming large? Phil Lebeau joining us now with more on the Ford story. I won't ask you to comment on the gremlin. Don't worry, Phil. It's good. <laughs> Brian, I think the thing for, folk, for people to focus on when Ford reports the uh, results after the bell is not necessarily third quarter, because remember, there was a warning back in September that costs were going to be a billion dollars higher than previously expected. They're not going to be able to ship 40 to 45,000 vehicles that are built because they they don't have all the parts, so they have to wait until they get those. But they expect that in the fourth quarter. It really is, do they reaffirm the guidance for the fourth quarter, which they did in September? And then what do they say, not only about uh, inflation, the supply chain, but more importantly, the cadence of demand and what they see with the consumer going into 2023. And then hanging over all of this is what they expect in terms of ramp up in EV uh, production. And that's really going to be crucial in 2023 and 2024. Any sign of waning demand on that side, for uh, Phil, for the Lightning or the Mach-E? No. No, at least not at this point. They're not showing a drop-off in reservations. Uh, look, they just raised the price, uh, an yeah. indication that they see enough demand there that they're telling people, if you want to get one now, you're going to be paying a higher price. For the, for the Lightning? For the Lightning, correct. Yeah, 90-plus thousand goes 130 miles on a charge if you're towing a trailer, apparently. I don't know. Delano, listen, there's a lot of question marks. Forget about EVs and the Mach-E's and whatever. The money's still in the gas-powered F-150s. But those are expensive, too. We got a recession potentially coming. We got higher car loans are, what, 9 and 10 percent. Any reason to own Ford the stock? And there's reasons to hold on to, to what you own and potentially buy because there might be weakness on this most recent earnings. Because just as you were mentioning, the big thing that investors have to look for is if there's going to be concern around re the recession and if the demand will at some point wane for high ticket items and large high margin trucks and SUVs. You just mentioned uh, inventory being higher, 40 to 50, 40 to 45,000 at the end of the third quarter um, for some of those trucks and SUVs. I think that's the big risk here for any investor. Um, I think this thing will be able to be turned around. I think they'll have more demand come around in like quarter two of 2022. So that's the one item I'm watching. Obviously, Ford is a legacy automaker. You want to have that in your portfolio, but you'll have to, you have to obtain some maybe near-term uh, volatility. 
All right, finally, stock number three, and that is the big cat. That is Caterpillar. It had a booming quarter. Stock's done very well, but as signs of a global recession grow, could Caterpillar face a downturn or they got it all figured out? Seema Modi has a story on Cat. Seema. And Brian, pricing will be key. Everything from iron ore to steel has come down in price dramatically in the past two months. Is that starting to show up in Caterpillar's numbers and manufacturers, these uh, big, heavy equipment that, of course, is used by so many industrial players? Analysts were saying it would take about one to two quarters. So that will be interesting to see if that that prognosis changes. Uh, Separately, the team at City recently caught up with Caterpillar's senior management and their takeaway is that competition is set to intensify in North America as customers look for more foreign suppliers. The stronger dollar obviously playing a big role there. It makes their products more attractive. If that's the case, what is Caterpillar doing to ensure it's not losing market share? Uh, As you pointed out, Brian, as always, it's lens into China. The global economy will be crucial. Can Wall Street bet on a 2023 rebound. And lastly, could deal-making be in the cards? Back in June, uh, we heard from CEO Jim Opelby, who said, we're not elephant hunting, but he also did not rule it out. Last time Caterpillar acquired a major business was back in 2010. We'll see if that becomes a topic of conversation tomorrow. Brian? Seema, how's their supply chain looking? Well, interestingly enough, Brian, uh, last quarter when we heard from Opilby in conversation with CNBC, he was not able to articulate when supply chain issues will ease, whereas GE and Cummins, they said, yes, we're facing issues, but it should get better in the first quarter of 2023. Very curious to see if Opilby has more visibility in the the next couple of months as to when uh, those supply chain issues could, in fact, get better. All right, Seema, thank you. Delano, any reason to own Cat? You buying Cat? Yeah, so one thing for, for Cat that's different and the other two companies we've named is the consumer side is showing some weakness, but the commercial side of the business is still showing some growth. Um, U.S. companies actually borrowed 4% more in August to finance, obviously, their investment in their equipment. The residential side for Caterpillar could be sides of concern, but the other side of their business showing strong. So if you're in a company that's performed down year to 5% year-to-date, performing really well relative to the market. This is something you want to hold or at least be owning or buying here, um, especially when they're not showing really signs of this cyclicality that you normally see in this sort of business. This is a strong hold here. Strong hold. Delano, thank you very much. Appreciate it, Seema. Thank you very much. Julia and Phil out there somewhere in the TV-verse, thank you as well. All right, coming up, we are now less than two weeks away from the midterm elections, and there are big tax changes on the ballot across the country We'll get into the biggest hikes and maybe some of the biggest cuts with Robert Frank next. And before we go, quick check on the markets. The Dow pairing some of its earlier gains. It is still higher, but not by much. The S&P and NASDAQ are down just a bit. NASDAQ off about 1.5% in what has been a very good month for stocks so far. We are back right after this. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. From California to Taxachusetts, people across America are gearing up to vote if they haven't already. And with everything else going on, don't forget there are some potentially big tax changes that could come. Robert Frank, Mr. Tax, is here to break them down for us. Robert. Because, Brian, we need more complexity in the tax. Damn right. right? So 12 states have changes on the ballot next month. Colorado actually has two ballot measures, one that would cut the current flat rate, another that would reduce deductions for the top earners. So it's a tax cut. A little less for those at the top. Voters in Massachusetts voting on the first change to its flat tax in over a century. 
would add a 4% surtax on million-dollar earnings, creating a new top rate of 9%. But the biggest change is California. Proposition 30, as it's known, would add a 1.75% surtax on those making $2 million or more. That would bring the top rate in California to over 15%, already the highest in the country, a combined federal and state rate of over 52%. There were about 35,000 taxpayers in California earning more than $2 million back in 2019. That's the latest year we have. They paid a third of the state's income taxes. So the fear is that if this passes, more of them will leave. And the proposal is backed by Lyft. They have spent $45 million supporting this measure. They would presumably benefit from fleet conversion to EVs. Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom, the state teachers union and Republicans all oppose the measure. So you've got the Democratic Party in California supporting it, the Democratic governor opposing it. It's very close right now. It needs to pass by a majority. It's now at 49 percent approval. So this is going to be down to the wire. Is there any candidate that you've heard that talks about cutting spending? No. Is it always just well, raising yes. the money? Republican, the Republican candidate for governor in New York State is calling for uh, reduced spending. Because we, we always hear about raising yeah. taxes, yeah. fair share, yeah. the wealthy need to do theirs. But we never hear about just like lowering the cost structure. Right. And that's going to become very important in the coming years because revenues are going to decline. We've been in this artificially high revenue position, not just from the federal aid to states, but also because of all the capital gains from the rising stock markets last year, which we will not get this year. And all the sales tax revenue on the state side from all the stimulus and PPP money that people went out and bought stuff with. Right. So we're going to have a conversation probably next year about either cutting spending or raising taxes or both. Let's hope it is at least both. Yes. <laughs> Let's hope. Not, not 95-5. History is not promising. But well, you don't get elected promising to take stuff That's away. True. That's true. You get elected by promising to, to give stuff. All right, Robert, thank you. Still ahead. President Biden, he took office at 78. Mick Jagger is still rocking at 79. And doesn't he have like a four-year-old Mick Jagger? Anyway, soon they could reflect a broad swath of the American workforce. We're going to get into what could be called a golden opportunity and the aging of America. Stick around. All right, call this a golden opportunity for business. People are living longer these days, and that could result in massive changes to the workforce, the way companies operate, and ultimately to the economy itself. In fact, Americans 55 and older hold 70% of the wealth in this country. They got lucky enough to ride the greatest bull market in the history of stocks. Well, your next guest recently wrote an article for Esquire titled, The New Longevity Isn't Coming, It Is Here. It explores the impact an aging population will have on business and the huge opportunity for companies to cash in. Joining us now is Michael Clinton, contributing writer at Esquire. I mean, this is, maybe it's not America's greatest generation, Michael, but it's America's richest generation because they, they started investing when, you know, Microsoft went public. Yeah, I know. Thank you, Brian. They are, in fact, the richest generation, and they're going to live longer than any other generation that's ever lived. And, you know, 10,000 people a day are turning 65. And by 2030, one in five Americans will be 65. And they will be extraordinarily, no, not everyone, of course, but the culture in general is going to have a very wealthy set of 65 plus year olds. 
Yeah, and what does it mean ultimately for the economy? A lot of wealth, but as we know, and it's, there, there's a lot of expenses also uh, aging, medical care, yeah. housing, whatever it may be. Well, you're seeing an amazing explosion in business of new uh, new industries, new businesses being launched, you know, in the geroscience area and medical technology, which are going to be real boom areas. You know, one of the venture fund capitalists, Alan Patrikoff, started a fund called Prime Time. And um, what it does is they they invest in startups of businesses that are servicing those people who are in that in that cohort. They have 25 investments, and that's going to help in terms of not only services, but cost. So medical care, telemedicine, elder concierge services, big, big opportunities. You know, one of their one of their companies is uh, called Tembo, and it allows people who are in senior housing to be able to have telemedicine. That's going to bring costs way down in general. So I think that's one great example of how you're going to be able to see costs come down for an aging population. It's so funny, too, because I'm in TV, right? I mean, and we always are concerned about the demo, like 18 to 49 or 25 to 54. I never quite figured that out necessarily because who's going to buy a $100,000 Ford F-150 Lightning? It's probably going to be a 60-year-old that's got excess cash. If I'm Ford... That's an untapped market. I don't want the 19-year-old who's buying a Toyota Scion or his parents are buying it for him. No offense to Scion. No, completely untapped market. I mean, who's driving Tesla? Who's driving the Apple Watch? You know, it's all 50-plus because of all the the various benefits and so forth. You know, in another area, in the media entertainment world, what's happening is in 2020, a new studio was launched called Landline. And what they're doing is producing films, rom-comedies, romantic comedies for people 50-plus, only with actors and actresses for 50-plus. And this this was born out of the distributors who said, we we know that's our audience and they're spending a lot of money on entertainment and a lot of other things. And we need to serve them. So it's happening in in entertainment. It's going to happen in media. That 18 to 34 year old is a fine market. But the bulk of the of the population is going to be 50 plus. That's where the It's funny. We, We were talking about the metaverse earlier in the show and I see their ads everywhere and it's primarily sort of younger to younger middle-aged people doing stuff. And I'm thinking the metaverse is going to boom when old people, when it's good enough and cool enough where old people could sit wherever they may be and be able to virtually walk the streets of Rome or spend Christmas with their grandkids if they can't be there physically. I think I'm, as an, I'm getting old. We're getting older. No one's getting younger. And I'm thinking when I'm older, I hope the metaverse works and it's cool because then I'm going to be able to do a bunch of cool things from wherever I may be. Well, think about the isolation factor, the loneliness factor. That's for it. People I mean, as, God, as you're age. depressing me. I, I, yeah. And, you know, I think there's a huge amount that's happening in this space with not only metaverse, but in gaming and ways to keep people engaged and involved. And I think in the, in the technology side, there are going to be businesses that are going to serve this cohort. And it's going to be married up to things like geroscience and uh, bioscience, where there are going to be companies. In fact, there's a Saudi-based company called Hevolution that has just committed a billion dollars a year to slow down the aging process in terms of bioscience. And so you're going to see that happen, and then you're going to see businesses rally yeah. around this phenomena to create new ideas. That's it. I mean, big, big untapped market and a very wealthy market. And it's amazing that lifespans have doubled 
in a, we always hear how terrible the world is. Everything's awful. Guess what? Life has never been longer for more people in many ways. Michael Clinton, Esquire. Check out the article. Michael, thank you. Thanks, Brian. All right, still ahead. Mortgage demand nearly half of what it was a year ago. New home sales, they sank in September. But is there some reason for optimism? We're going to find out next. All right, welcome back. We want to get one more thing before we go. And that is a check on the housing market because both mortgage demand and new home sales falling as rates climb higher. Let's bring in Diana Olick for more on the numbers. Diana, we know they look bad, but is there any silver lining here? Um, I'll think about that one. But look, you got these sharply higher mortgage rates, which I'll get to in a second. But first, new home sales dropped nearly 11% in September from August, which was slightly better than expected, but only because August's huge jump was revised down. Sales were down nearly 18% year over year. Prices were still up nearly 14% from a year ago, but that may be because more is selling on the higher end since the entry-level buyers are struggling with these higher mortgage rates. And that's the crux of all of it. The Mortgage Bankers Association showed the weekly average last week at 7.16%. That was the highest in 21 years. And that continued to tank demand for refinances, which are down 86% from a year ago. There are less than 150,000 qualified borrowers who could now see any savings from a refi. That's kind of an amazing number. Now, the vast majority of homeowners have lower rates, which is why so few homes are now selling. That is, demand for mortgages from home buyers was down 42% from a year ago, which is pretty striking. Buyers are really stepping back now, even though home prices are coming off their peak. So is that your silver lining, Brian? Home prices maybe coming back? Well, I- I, I do know, maybe, and listen, this is obviously going to go to the higher end audience, but we are CNBC. There's a shocking number of people that are all cash buyers, are they not? So they don't care about rates. Prices come down. For, if you're an all cash buyer, this is a win. Okay, if you're an all cash buyer, I'll give you that. You're not worried about the mortgage rate, but are you worried about catching a falling knife, as in you put all cash into a, say, two, $3 million home only to see the price? act like a car coming off a new car lot and come down 10% over the next, you know, couple of years. You don't want that, do you, right? No, I guess not. I was trying because everyone's like, oh, he's so negative. I'm I'm trying to find something, some positive in there, Diana. Can you blame a guy? (laughs) No, look, they do have more bargaining power. And if you're coming in with all cash, that's fantastic, especially if you're in a market where prices are softening because sellers are definitely not thinking that they're going to get the sky anymore. And so all cash, there is your silver lining coming in. You're getting that home price maybe slightly lower depending on what market you're You in. bought Bitcoin at 20 bucks. Now it's <laughs> 20000 You got a bunch of money. You live on Gibson's Island, Maryland. You got a giant boat. It happens. It's all working. It's all working. Diane Olick, thank you very much. All right, that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/slash activecash.